Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 lawyers over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My mission is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, is doing during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how loiners have, are and will be coping with our multiple crises. The global pandemic, Brexit and of course the ongoing and accelerating collapsing of capitalism, the state and the climate through this decade. To do this I need people, people like you dear listener. Most of all I need people who are in Leeds or who are from Leeds to come on this show and be my guests. So please join me and help me with this mission whenever and however you can. Critically I will need people like you dear listener as financial backers. Please consider supporting or donating to this project. You can do so with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount to Working Hours via either Ko-fi or through the LibrePay button on the About page of Western Studios' website. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? It's a really good question. Uh, I haven't prepared an answer for this. I sort of think that I might have liked to have been something in a in one of the sports. So I, I can remember uh, some memories when I was a child, probably around about, I don't know, eight or nine years old, thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind being a footballer. Mm. Uh, and then that quickly got surpassed with, yeah, football's a bit difficult, possibly cricket. Yeah. Uh, and then when I got to my sort of teenage years and maybe uh, I, I was thinking, yeah, sports might not actually be a, a viable route for me to go down. Still quite fancy golf, but I, I just don't think I'll make it onto the, uh, onto the world tour. So I did not have a, a very well, uh, sort of planned out route of, you know, I wanted to become uh, a, a player in the legal profession, um, that sort of. I suppose in a way you might say that, that happened a little by accident, uh, probably like, uh, well, some other people will say that their parents influenced their choice of career. Uh, I mean, I'm not, um, not blind to the fact that of course, uh, things do ultimately boil down to personal choice. And if I didn't want to be in this career, I could be in a different career. Mm. Um, but I remember my, I remember my father who was, uh, who was a salesman in the computer software industry, which at that time was fairly um, well, certainly not as developed as it is now. I think I'm, I'm reading between the lines here. I think he must have met a few, uh, a few lawyers and thought, well, they all drive great cars. They've all got massive cars. Well, I reckon you should do that, son. Mm. And, uh, I, uh, obviously at, at school, you get, um, some degree of, uh, careers advice. And I sort of talked it through with, um, a couple of my teachers who thought that I would be capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really what sort of, um, started me off down that track. So did you actually go straight into studying law then? Yes, I did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I went to, uh, Sheffield university, 
uh, straight into a law degree, although I will mention that it also included a, a, lang a foreign language. Um, I was always interested in foreign languages, and so, so I did go and study law. Uh, I suppose one of the benefits of having a language with it is A, it interests me, mm -hmm. uh, B, it, uh, it of course afforded you a year abroad back in those days. I'm not entirely sure how it works now. I should imagine it's similar, but uh, a, a year abroad was definitely, um, definitely something I wanted to do. So what was the language? Uh, French. You're still listening to Series 3 and this is Episode 46 and my guest Stephen Griffiths. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 8th of August 2022. Hello loves. Stephen Griffiths started his legal career in the private sector but has worked as part of a legal team within a HE Institute in Leeds for the past few years. He works on items like contracts, patents or any other legal agreements that might be needed by the institution. There's obviously a lot more to both the role and Stephen than just that, but he didn't really give me much for his bio, so this is what we have. Perhaps it's genius marketing on his part, we'll see. Yes, we've had lawyers on before, but every interview is unique, so listen to this one anyway. Give me money on Patreon so I can keep making more of these faster and make them better. Patreon.com forward slash working hours pod. Right then, let's get on with it then. Episode 76 of Working Hours with Stephen Griffith. We may as well go on to the next question, which is what do you do now? I mean, we kind of touched on it anyway, but uh, yeah. So what is it that you're doing now? So um, I work in uh, the legal team, as I said, at one of the higher education institutions based in Leeds. Um, what that actually translates to in terms of day-to-day um, -day, uh, working life, um, I, I'm principally involved in uh, looking at negotiating, drafting, amending uh, various contracts. Uh, so they could be contracts for all sorts of different things, but in the main, the, the meat of my of my work um, is drafting agreements which relate to intellectual property that's created or controlled uh, by the institution. Mm. Uh, so again, to simplify yet further, um, the simplest example might be something like a license to a particular piece of intellectual property. Could be, could be software, could be a pattern, could be all sorts of different things. And, and quite often it's a combination of a number of things. Mm. I also have some uh, some input into some of the, well, some of the matters which are decided at a, a fairly high level within the institution. So rather than drafting a specific license of a specific piece of IP to, you know, a, a particular licensee, it could be a matter which is a, a sort of a more central concern to the institution. So that might be some sort of Perhaps the institution wants to develop a relationship with a particular uh, outfit. It, you know, it could be a commercial outfit, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a a funding, um, a provider of funding uh, in some way. Um, those are the type of things where I tend to get involved. I, I think it's always, I think it's always um, somewhat fraught with danger when you say you work in the legal profession. People will almost automatically assume that you're, um, you're, you're, you're definitely a solicitor or you're definitely a barrister and you almost certainly go to court every day, uh, whether that's, you know, sort of suing the pants off people or sorting out divorce matters or sacking employees or something like that, that those tend to be in my experience, the, um, uh, the sort of things that come to people's mind, which isn't isn't always true. And certainly not in my case. 
I can definitely say that um, I'm very happy not going to court each day. I, I think if I was coming home each day thinking, well, that was a cracking day of arguing. I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's argument. Um, then I, I think I would have uh, gone quite a way off the path I, I choose. Um, I think I'd like to look at my role as um, uh, collaborative. Uh, so we, you know, I'm, I'm constantly working with uh, third parties. And uh, although occasionally there's a temptation to, um, to bring some sort of adversarial element into the discussion, the truth of the matter is that both parties tend to win or win better, uh, if I can say that, if it's a, a collaborative uh, effort. There are compromises to be made, obviously, on all sides. And um, if we can get a compromise that works for us, then then that is the job done. Mm. Silly questions first. So what about the golf course and the country club? Are you a member of the country club and do you, do you play much golf? <laughs> uh, well, I used to play a fair bit of golf. I, I was a member at uh, one of the clubs in one of the, one of the golf clubs in North Leeds. Um, but I haven't been a member for probably something like about six, seven, eight years, something like that. Um, I do still uh, enjoy golf a lot. I mean, I'm even one of those people who's prepared to watch it on television. Um, <laughs> it's becoming rarer and rarer. But um, I've got a, I, I have a, a, a slight niggle in my right shoulder, meaning that I, I haven't actually been on the golf course, uh, truth be told, probably for about 18 months or so. I mean, I definitely hope to get back there. It's... Um, it strikes me that um, uh, as much as people malign golf and it being a, a waste of a walk or, you know, I, I forget exactly the phrase, but... Uh, nice walk spoiled. That's the one, yes. So I, <laughs> so I actually quite enjoy walking around the golf course. And particularly if you, uh, you know, if you hit a decent shot, it gives you, a, it gives you that sort of satisfactory feeling that is, is quite difficult to... I suppose it's a bit like... Um, hitting a cricket shot out of the middle of the bat or something, or, mm. or maybe, you know, catching your squash ball just right. So it's, it's quite difficult to replicate the satisfaction that you can get when you hit a good shot. Mm. Yeah. So I am not currently a member of a golf club, but I have been in the past. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, my next question would kind of be, how did you get into it? I mean, again, we've kind of covered some of that, uh, I mean, how, how did you end up there basically? I mean, was it sort of law degree and then you were like, this is the area I'm interested in, or was it just kind of the jobs you found sort of led you in this area? Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think part of a legal, a legal education sort of package, if you start at degree level, which I did, uh, you have to cover certain basic topics. So, you know, everyone needs to learn about, you know, suing people, everyone needs to learn land law and contract law and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm very much today in the, I do contract law, um, sort of area. Mm. Um, that being said, when I finished my law degree, um, I got a, so I had a, what, what was then called a training contract. Mm. Uh, you, you then do, uh, in my case, it was two years of training. So that's on the job training. Um, I did it at, uh, one of the major commercial law firms, um, based in Leeds. The firms generally will move you around into different areas to give you some exposure to either things that, you know, might be near to you or, or stuff that you already knew that you might be interested in. Mm. Um, 
So I, I did, uh, I worked in four different areas in the law firm. Certainly one of them I really didn't enjoy. At least two of the others I did quite enjoy. Mm. That started to give me an indication of where I, where I fancied sort of ending up. And generally speaking, the way that, um, law firms used to work, I should imagine it might be the same today, but you never know. You would maybe, I don't know, sort of four, four months before you were due to qualify, you'd be having those discussions about A, do you want me to stay? Uh, and B, where is there a vacancy? What sort of team can I fit into? And then you'd start thinking, obviously, you know, do I know that team? Do I know the people there? Mm. Um, so I, I had selected my, uh, area of practice, which was, so that was uh, the, the corporate department mm-hmm. and what that translates to in layman's terms is it's the team that deal with, uh, business transactions, a lot of which are either one company buying another, or, or should we say one party buying, um, another or another business, mm-hmm. um, or it could be the other way around. You could be acting for perhaps the shareholders of the company who want to sell their company and they've got somebody interested. And because of the, uh, the firm that I started with, some of the transactions were a little more high profile. So that could be, uh, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, companies can list their shares on public markets that you could go and buy some shares in, you know, BT or whatever. Um, and it also covered, um, I, so there was, there was a, a decent international element to the work that I started doing there because I think pr- primarily because of the size of the firm and the coverage that they had. So I said it was based in Leeds, but in truth, this is a, this is a firm that had offices, uh, both around the UK and also internationally. Mm. So, so I started doing that and I, I practiced in that area for, um, probably about, well, I mean, let's say the thick end of 10 years, cause it, it, it was, it was in that sort of region. And, and then I sort of transitioned into, you know, into the, the, the current, um, well, my, my current employer, my role actually within, uh, the, the institution I work has actually evolved over time as well. Um, so it didn't, it didn't always used to cover all the things that I, I currently do, mm. but, and I, I think this is an important point I'd like to make that most, in my opinion, you, I don't think you can get anywhere in the legal profession without having a decent grasp of contract law in particular. Um, I certainly remember some of my, um, some of my professors at university indicating that essentially society itself is, is virtually based on contract law. Mm. Um, you know, I agree with you that we won't kill each other's wives or children, mm. um, because if we do, there's a consequence. And I mean, that's an extremely abstract example, but it does prove that in my view, proves the point that there are, there are social norms, which if you want to be part of society, you have to agree to abide by that, which is very similar to entering into a contract saying that you will or won't do, you know, X, Y, or Z. What's interesting. What holds the interest for you? Like, obviously, you know, you've, you've been doing it over 10 years. Like what makes you get up and go in? Is it like, you know, a good legal clause or is it just sort of the, the process and the I would imagine it's kind of methodical of like, you know, you, you get one contract, you work through the contract and you, you know, you could work through the clauses and agreements and stuff and then get it settled and signed off. Like, um, what are, what are the things that keep you going? 
you, you've alluded to some of the aspects which are uh, interesting. So I would say that um, given my career has had essentially two quite different chapters, you know, one in the uh, cutthroat commercial world for about 10 years and then working at the institution, which as I said earlier, is uh, a bit more collaborative and a bit less cutthroat. There are still actually quite common goals between, or, or certainly common feelings between uh, both, uh, both roles. So to give you some examples of this, in the, what is now the first half of my career, the, the thing that actually drives you on, you know, aside from, well, hopefully getting paid for what you're doing, the truth of the matter is that you have, you might have a, a big transaction that you need to do. This is, this essentially is, um, I mean, I, I think back to one of the transactions I did, which involves a family selling a business. The, the family had, uh, owned and controlled this business for several generations, obviously their, their goal, uh, was to sell the business, hopefully keep all of their workforce still employed, mm. um, perhaps sort of dabble around the edges, maybe for the next couple of years, uh, and, and then essentially retire, uh, you know, clean break. And they could then go and do something else with their lives. You know, maybe that would have been investing in something else, you know, I don't know, buying another smaller business. You could think of all sorts of examples. So the responsibility that's placed upon, upon someone like me might be, you know, you, you definitely want to not, well, you're trying not to knacker this family's plans because it becomes very obvious if you have done so. So there is a sort of a, a people element to it. You need to, you know, you need to know your client well to know what their goals are. Sometimes you'd be surprised at. What, what looked like crazy decisions. Yes, I'll, you know, concede this point to, I'm really, really keen on winning this particular point. You don't know which of those are actually terribly important until your client tells you, uh, mm. which ones are really important. Mm. So there's, there's definitely a sort of a people side to it, but I, I still fall back to my main contention, which is that actually completing the transaction is, you know, is, uh, is, is the worthwhile thing in itself. I mean, I'm ignoring all the things like, you know, you obviously be sending them a bill for the, you know, the costs and that sort of thing. It's a bit like, I guess it was a bit like, um, completing a project at school. You would, you would do a project and you might work on that for, you know, a month or a couple of months or something like that. Mm. Perhaps you'd do the presentation at the end of it to the class, you know, I guess in, in, in the context I'm talking about it, say, well, here we are at the completion meeting. It's now time to sign all of the documents. Uh, you know, you, you have the last minute little queries about what about this, something, the other, but ultimately certainly where the, the work I did was the rules were you're not leaving until it all gets done. You know, the motivation is you've, you've got a, a project and you want to see that project through and you want to leave it in a position where it's all done and dusted, the ink's being put on the page and people know what they're doing. And, you know, should I, I always think it's quite important. I say this to a lot of my colleagues, it's quite important that a third party might be somebody who, you know, replaces me in five years time, or if I go off and do something else, one of my colleagues might have to look at the document that I created. And if you've done a good job, uh, then they can pick up that document, read it and say, okay, yeah, I, I pretty much understand what's going on. It, it, it's fairly clear. Um, I mean, nobody's perfect. You'll always find a couple of little clauses where people say, actually, you know, does it mean this or does it mean that? But I, I would always hope that a third party could pick up the documents I've done, read it and have a fairly decent understanding of, of what it was we were trying to do. I'll start off with COVID. 
So I want you to kind of think back to before we went into lockdown and thinking about when, when you did lockdown, if you did indeed lockdown and sort of when that happened, whether you were working more, working less, whether it was like a big increase in work or you were just like, whether it was kind of, you didn't know what was going on and sort of what do you think have been the things that have changed for you kind of long-term work-wise because of COVID? Okay, it's a, a wide subject, Terra. So let's try and pick off uh, various bits as we go along. Let, let's just jump straight in with what happened when COVID hit. And the answer was, of course, we all got sent home. Mm. We were given computers and said, right, you're working at home for the next month. And of course, we thought it might last for maybe three weeks to a month. And here we are, some more or less about two and a half years later. Uh, and I'm still sat at home with my laptop. It'll need, it'll need replacing shortly, I'm sure, because it will be out of date. Um, but we, uh, very quickly got to grips, probably like most people with this thing called teams or zoom, or, you know, cho choose your software application and insert there. But we had, yeah, I would say a fair amount of, let's call it, uh, well, it's face to face over the internet time, isn't it really? It's not face to face time. But I would say I had a decent uh, amount of exposure to that. In terms of my workload, I would not say that my workload massively increased. Um, what I would say, I mean, I suppose to finish that off, it didn't massively decrease either. Yeah. Um, it was fairly, fairly even keel. But one thing which I'm absolutely certain of is that uh, it is. It is genuinely much more efficient for me to do the work uh, remotely or at least the bulk of the work. Mm. So if I cast my mind back to the times when I was uh, going into an office five days a week, you know, nine till half five, I would, uh, th there are just so many distractions in an office. Mm. You know, every time you, you think, well, I might go and make myself a drink and it, you know, quite often. You're either earwigging someone else's discussion or, mm. or you go and have a chat with, you know, one of your, one of your colleagues that I suppose I actually miss a bit. Um, you know, the, the, the interactions with your colleagues is, is something that I have realized that I've missed. Mm. That being said, when I was stuck into a project and we had to, you know, we, the idea was we'd get it done by deadline, you know, whatever it is, end of the month or something. Um, there were so many distractions that working from home was a, a real blessing for me because it meant that I could essentially churn through my work without the sort of interruptions. I mean, the only interruptions really were sort of seeing how many Amazon fans were going up and down the street and he was getting what, you know, that, that's about it. I, I would say on balance, I could work more efficiently um, in a remote role. We do, so my employer certainly encourages people to go into the physical office if that's something you need to do, or even, even if you don't need to, you're, you know, perfectly welcome to take your computer in, go and sit at a desk. And, you know, as long as you're following all the rules and protocols, they're, they're very happy to have you there. But I, my, my role, so again, going back to when I used to go into the office, I clearly need to communicate regularly and in some volume with my colleagues who are the ones who are giving me the instructions, you know, on document X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is, that's, that's very, very achievable over the internet. In some ways it's clearer, but I would say overall, I, I think that for probably 80% of my time, it's more efficient for me to be remote. In actual fact, I was doing a project that was so large pre-COVID that I'd even 
I'd even said to my boss, I'm, I just need to spend some time at home. Mm. And whether he liked it or not, I was contactable, but I was staying away because it was so involved. Mm. Um, it was sort of a project that took me about nine months to do. And getting peace and quiet at home actually made it achievable. If I'd been in the office for the entire time that I was doing that project, I, I, I think we'd still be there today. Have you always been in open plan offices then while you've been doing this work? Have you had your own office at any point? So certainly whilst working um, with my current employer, it's always been open plan. Mm. Uh, I've been in different rooms. It's ranged from, so I remember when I first started, uh, I was based in a a different location to where I currently am. And I think I was in a room with, it was, I think it was about six people. Mm. Um, And we sort of had a director in an office next door. There's been a couple of interim moves, but where I am currently based, at least in, in my office, there's probably about 50 desks. I, so prior to COVID, there would be 50 people sat there. Mm. Um, but these days when I go in, it tends to be on an organized, uh, you know, the team is coming in this day sort of basis. So I, I'd probably see maybe 20, 20, 25 people, something like that. So probably half of the desks are empty, which. Uh, you know, for the sake of um, complying with the, the sort of COVID protocols about keeping space and, you know, all that kind of stuff probably works fairly well. You'll have to cram the time sometimes of, okay, well, we need to do this. It's going to take this many hours. I am not going to do that in, you know, like nine to five work time. How how does it work time-wise for you? Do, you? do you feel quite squeezed for time or are you normally quite good are you a bit of a workaholic so you do you don't even think about it or do you get quite a nice work-life balance from it i think my view is that right now i have quite a nice work-life balance it hardly needs mentioning but i don't have to spend you know two hours a day getting a bus or riding a bike into work so i've al- already won two hours a day which i can you know use on whatever i choose i think that and um, certainly during, um, well, let, let's say since the pandemic affected workplaces, I have been quite able, uh, without too much difficulty, setting limits on, right, well, I'll start at nine, but at 5.30, that's it, you know, tools get downed. Mm. Of course, there are the odd exception that there always will be. Uh, but I guess you, you know, you, you, you might say, oh, well. It, it's only one day and it needs doing and you do it and it's gone, you know, the next day, you know, the same pressure will not be there. I think it, it can be, you can fall into a little bit of a trap if you are at home and you've got your computer at home and your computer is on, some people undoubtedly will be minded to, you know, check what their email account is saying at 7 PM. Yeah, I don't have that problem. Um, I mean, I can see yeah, if, if the computer is still on at seven o'clock, then I can probably see that sort of stuff, but I'm certainly not going to do about, you know, do anything about it until the next day mm. because, you know, after work is, is my time. Put it this way. I don't have to fill out a timesheet mm. and therefore nobody is knocking on my door saying, hang on a second, why aren't you working, you know, 7 p.m. or whatever, because you haven't done enough hours this month. Mm. Um, quite quite the opposite. And I've got one of those roles where actually I think the, the bottom line is provided that I get done what needs to be done, mm. um, most of my colleagues I think will be, will be happy with that as the result. Mm. If you're days or weeks late with the job, yeah, you're, you're going to start to, you're going to start to understand that that's not, that's not what they're looking for, but that, 
that's uh, yeah, very much a rarity um, mm. in my work. Maybe that's because I've got a good system organized. You know, I, I don't know. Possibly there are you know others who who do get into trouble that way. But uh, I mean, I think that when somebody introduces me to a task that needs doing, uh, one of the things I'm always going to ask them is, "What sort of time frame are you working on?" And if they say I need it by the end of the week, then, you know, I can look at what my other commitments are and, and organize myself accordingly. Mm. Um, and if they say I need it by the end of today and I say that is, well, I'll either say it's just unrealistic, polite way of saying, no, that won't be happening. I mean, my overall impression, and, and I, I am grateful for this, is that I get a decent amount of freedom to organize my diary in a way that, you know, that suits best. Probably worth touching on the fact that sometimes, you know, Probably occasionally is the better word because it's, it's fairly rare these days. I might be talking to, um, somebody in the U S for instance, and of course they, you know, us having something between five and eight hours difference obviously means that our working days are, you know, don't, don't align. Um, so if you wanted to talk to somebody at nine o'clock in the morning, their time, yeah. that'll be anything from probably two in the afternoon to five in the afternoon here. And if it's an hour and a half call, you're going to have to have with them then. That's one of those days when you might run over. You, I mean, you know, you'd organize yourself such that, well, maybe you'll start half an hour later the next day or, you know, something along those lines. Now, I imagine you go into a day with like, you know, your day's kind of planned in your head already before you, you know, it's not like, oh, I've turned up at the office. What's happening today? It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know what you're doing the next day or, you know, potentially through the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So I, I mean, I. I have my trusty notebook, which I, well, I just basically write notes on whatever anyone, you know, gives me in terms of jobs. Uh, I mean, you know, your, your calendar, um, obviously gets filled up with various bits and bobs. A, a lot of my calendar entries are not, um, meetings with people, but I just block out the time to do, you know, job number one, job number two, et cetera. And, um, so I, t I tend to. Particularly when it's something I know I need to put quite a lot of concentration into. I might block off an afternoon or something, you know, block off an entire morning and I'm just not, I mean, even if somebody calls, I, I, I would not answer the call unless I knew that it was say, for example, connected with that particular job. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's the, you see, allowing yourself to be interrupted like that, uh, that gets you back into the field of having the problems that I used to have when I was in the office, mm -hmm. you know, my boss is saying, we've got, we've got to get this document out today. And well, the next thing you know, you got, you know, two or three people going, could I just ask you about this? And inevitably, you know, it, when, <laughs> what's the biggest lie in the workplace? This will only take five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that your line? Uh, uh, that, that's the line that people went, it's only a quick one. No, it is. I'm going to move on to Brexit. Basically, the question is straightforward. Since we have Brexited, have you noticed any change in your work? Good question. I've noticed changes, but not... I don't think I have seen huge changes as far as my working life is concerned. You know, I still, I still liaise with a lot of folks that live around the institution who are who are from an EU uh, background, um, you know, still plenty of you know, French, Italian, Spanish, uh, et cetera, et cetera, who, who, who are still colleagues. I, 
uh, one of my sort of previous strings in my bow used to be that I um, helped a lot with the uh, putting in place documents that were European funded and therefore probably involved something like, you know, anywhere between about five and 10 um, European uh, institutions, mostly universities, but not always. I mean, I, I don't do that anymore because I have a slightly different, um, uh, you know, angle uh, with my role now. I mean, I don't know whether I haven't actually asked uh, colleagues who look after that whether that has changed for them. I thought um, when Brexit happened that yeah, that'll be it. That department's going to close down because we're you know we're no longer in the EU. That has proven to be false. It hasn't. They got that more work. <laughs> well, and I'm not more work. I'm not sure if they've got more, but what I would say is that, you know, I thought it would be literally, there'd be, well, downing tools and, you know, they'd all get buyers and nothing to do. But in actual fact, um, I think a lot of the, I mean, you, you had, let's call them, you know, split it into two categories. You had EU funded projects that were, that were already in place pre-Brexit and that therefore continued post-Brexit. Well, I mean, there's just no point kicking out your, you know, English counterparts purely because of Brexit. Um, and then, of course, new projects where, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's more difficult. I can't imagine that it's less difficult for us to get funding. So I have to assume that it's either just as difficult or perhaps more difficult now. But I, I certainly haven't heard, you know, in any anecdotal sense that there's, that there's not much to do on that front. So I, yeah, I mean, in my personal work, I don't think it's really had any change. Uh, that could be to do with the kind of folk that I'm, you know, going up against, so to speak. Um, but I thought some of my colleagues would have been harder hit than, than they have been. Do you have to do any social media work in your role? And how much time does that take up for you? And is it beneficial to you? Now, I can't really imagine that you'll have to do much for your role, but I could be wrong. No, you, you are, you are correct in assuming that I basically do no social media at all, uh, in, in my current role. There are colleagues, of course, who are heavily involved in that and some of them exclusively do that sort of thing. Mm. Um, you know, my employer's got, well, many different, you know, Twitter accounts, mm. that sort of thing, but, um, it's not my job to get involved in those. And I don't feel, I don't really feel like I can contribute to those. Those sort of activities tend to have a, a quite particular agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's, you know, raising profile of a particular thing that the institution's doing, but it's just not, it's just not part of what I, what I currently do. So yeah, I think the, the, the simple answer is yeah, no, no real input into it. I, I have no objection to my colleagues doing what they do. Luckily it's not force fed to us. We don't have to subscribe to whatever Twitter account. Um, and some of them I do subscribe to because I'm genuinely interested in what they're talking about. Mm. Uh, but the vast majority I don't subscribe to and nobody's ever objected to the fact that I'm, I'm not involved in them. Mm. And, and I'm happy with that as a, well, I'm happy with that as a, you know, as a, as a sort of an outcome or a situation. I don't, don't want to have to follow things that I'm not going to read. So, um, so it suits me the way things are at the moment. Mm. I think you've raised an interesting point there as well, though, you know, like you were, in, you, you follow some of the, the accounts. Do you find that you find out stuff there that you don't necessarily find out through sort of internal work channels sometimes that you just like, oh, that's happening. That you wouldn't necessarily have known. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, I'd say that you do find out about things that you would not otherwise have found out about. But again, I think, I think it's a reasonably innocent explanation, which is that the, the kind of things that I follow, which might be, let's say a, a theme, like a, like a research theme into, I don't know, environmental climate change or use of water or energy or something along those lines. No, no person has got any business telling me what that department is doing in my workplace, because you know, I, I, I never act for, you know, a theme or a department. I'm always acting for, you know, professor X or, mm. or, you know, academic Y or something like that. So it's very unlikely that any of them would want, would want to involve me in their, you know, in their research theme other than, oh yeah, we need a contract now. Uh, who's the guy that does that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and sort of internal things we, we've touched on teams and zoom and so on. I mean, do you find, do you get benefit from the kind of chat, the internal work chat and those kind of things? Do you feel that that's kind of more fluid than email? Um, is there, I mean, is there a place for both? Is it different tools for different jobs? Yeah, I think that, so, that, so that's it. We, I mean, we talked about COVID and uh, differences in the working style and what have you working practices uh, in a previous question. But what I, one of the things that I definitely remarked over the last two and a bit years is that where there is a change to, let's say, either a policy or at least a working practice that some of my colleagues have, um, that is not always explained to everybody who has a need to know. Mm. Uh, you know, so somebody might uh, somebody might say to me, right, I need you to do, you know, a license agreement, and it's with these people, and we're going to license, you know, on their piece of software or something. Then I might prepare that document, and the person might come back to me and say, well, why did you put that in there? We like we we don't do that anymore. And I say, don't we? I, I nobody told me that we didn't do that. Of course, I can, I can learn that lesson from that moment onwards, but I think if I was spending 80% or more of my time in the office, the chances are I would get wind of that before, mm. you know, before somebody came back and said, this, this isn't quite right. Mm. Um, and I think that that is, yeah, I've definitely remarked. So on a number of occasions, a couple of people have said, I, I you know, we're not using that method anymore. I, I guess it's, uh, you, you could all... Yeah, it might be useful to have some sort of monthly, you know, update what's changing within our team or, you know, which affects the work that we're doing, which we don't have. Maybe other teams do, but uh, certainly my team doesn't. And because uh, we have probably like most people, some, you know, either a weekly or a monthly team meeting, I think ours are every two weeks, but there are things that happen uh, during that two week period, which you just, given, given all the other stuff you already need to do, you know, deal with all the formalities and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I just don't think there's enough time to actually say, well, by the way, we're talking to this person, you know, mm. we're thinking about changing our, our line on this particular point. Mm. Um, does anyone have anything to say? Or maybe it will just be the boss saying, this is how it's going to be. Mm. Um, but the truth is that there just isn't enough time to pack it all in. Mm. Mm. You know, people talk about with, with media and communication, you know, you sort of, well, we've got all these methods to communicate with each other and like it's it's harder than ever i think it's that we underestimate how hard it is to communicate like mm. part of the reason i think rather than you know they've just appeared it's like we've invented all these new methods because we haven't cracked one yet where we can totally just like i know exactly what you mean 
and you know and that's kind of why you're there as well so it's like look we're all on the same page like literally on this page well i think the one of the other things that's so <laughs> it's all very well uh you know trying to communicate in a thousand different ways and you know putting a load of content on your social media outlets and you know the answer was there had you chosen to read it mm. yeah i mean the thing is for every social media post you put out there i mean i need to take time to read it if you're expecting mm. me to learn anything from it so and i think that a lot of the a lot of the things that i was just talking about in the sense of you know we, we've had a change of stance on a particular issue that's the kind of thing which um, you would you would get that learning by osmosis if you were in an office for eighty percent of your time. Mm. Um, and I'm you know I'm acutely aware of the limitations of working at home in that respect because the the you know overhearing somebody talking about it in the corridor or you know something like that that at least tips you off that it might be happening when you're physically in the office. Whereas if you're completely remotely working, well, that's just never going to come up. Maybe nobody's going to accidentally sort of tell you something without having a meeting booked in the calendar. Mm. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. There's still a level of that with offices because I know from people that worked part-time or they worked, you know, like even people that are just part-time, it's like because you're not in the office all the time, you would you would miss stuff. And like people wouldn't think to kind of update you if this has happened or that has happened. In your role, can you, do you, would you like to uh, do anything to raise awareness or to help uh, with adaptation or mitigation of climate change? Okay. It's another wide ranging question. So yes. um, my employer is very active in, uh, let's call it the sphere of everything to do with environment, climate change, that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I mean, I strongly support what they're doing. I think it's a, a very responsible um, stance to take. Do I want to do things in my job? Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is I already do things in my job, which have uh, certainly, you know, certainly have one eye on not certainly climate change, but I'm going to say the words sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, we are, we are aware of, you know, the, the limits to the resources which are available, not only to us, but to everyone else who lives on the planet as well. Um, so of course, things like recycling and getting to sort of, uh, you know, carbon neutral and net zero and all that sort of thing, that there's, there's an awful lot of initiatives already in place, which, which address those things. Given that I work at an institution with a great number of uh, serious and high-ranking academics who concentrate on this subject, I, I genuinely don't think I can actually help them a great deal. I think it's the other way around. But I'm perfectly happy to, you know, follow uh, either sort of policies or guidance or whatever you might call it um, regarding how we should be behaving in, you know, in in that regard. I mean, you might imagine that a couple of years ago, my job would be a lot more paper heavy than, than some other jobs. Uh, if you're, if you're just somebody who's on the phone for eight hours a day, you're probably not going to use a great deal of paper. Whereas mm. if you're drafting documents and then checking them and then amending them, I mean, that, that is, you know, that's a role which cries out, you're going to use a lot of paper. Uh, and whilst we've been um, doing our best to recycle the vast majority of the paper for quite a while now, the last time I printed a document, I think possibly earlier this year, but only on a couple, you know, a couple of occasions. So. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm already aware of the fact that I was just not using that resource, uh, in the same way that I was previously, which 
you know, makes me feel fine about it. There are some challenges not having a physical uh, paper document in front of you, but, you know, with the technological tools we've got uh, available to us, it's, it's not so difficult to surmount those sort of problems. I mean, I do feel like I, I participate in that area by following, you know, the, 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 I hesitate before saying the rules, but you might as well say the rules uh, that are imposed upon us, but I don't object at all to having rules along those lines in post. I'm, I'm, you know, somebody who's, um, I, I am concerned about, uh, you know, the environment and climate change generally. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of all used to that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an abstract issue now, is it? Because, I mean, you know, and then you've got a third of Pakistan underwater. You've had temperatures above, you know, temperatures hitting 50 degrees around the world or through summer, and in some cases, people's winters. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it, it's not something that's abstract enough in the future anymore. No, far from it. Far from it. It's, it's thrust in our faces on a daily basis, but I would probably say rightly. I'm thinking that, with an institution such as yours and you've got you know like it's it's kind of values-based stuff but all of that that's policy for you you know like you've got to i mean it's not a legal statute well maybe it has connections to depending on their arrangements and so on but the organization is like these are part of our values so i would imagine that's got to be part of every kind of contract that you you're kind of working on there, there is uh, there is an element of that in the contractual world that I live in. Um, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't. I would be I would be lying if I told you that every contract I did have a schedule. Yes, you're not allowed to use uh, you know excess resources or something like that. Mm. But we do have. So I mean, um, if if you said, well, if somebody came to me and said. Right, like I need this, I need a contract and it's going to be with this uh, particular company. You know, it's a company that's involved in one of those industries that's very uh, exploitative of the resources it's using. Mm -hmm. it's using. Then I think that the, I, I would be referring the question of, should I be doing this job? I'd be referring that upwards to get a view on, you know, do we want to engage with, say, a coal mining company? Yeah. Um, or, I mean, you could put, you could put a number of different industries into that pod, but there are certainly, um, you know, as a question of facts, there are, there are some industries which, which the institution will not want to be involved in. Now that pot of, you know, who don't we work with that evolves over time. I think generally speaking, the institution's intention is to work with as many people as it, as it can. Mm. Um, that's a sort of a start point. But I do think that there are always caveats to, you know, do we really want to work with, you know, company X has been exploiting child labor in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa for the last 20 years. And there's a big, you know, big expose in the, in the press about it. Uh, we will, and, you know, whilst I use that example, another example, just as good would be some sort of environmental impacts that this, you know, this other organized, excuse me, other organization has had. Uh, we're not going to work with everybody. Yeah. And reputations, like, you know, that's, a, it's, it's a big thing in that area because you, you, you need so many people to be accountable to. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's a uh, reputation is, um, not, not absolutely the, you know, the first thing that is considered when we think about, do we want to do a job, but it's definitely on the list and it's definitely 
top half of the list. Mm. Um, higher education institutions need to uh, need to raise funding and they need to get it from public money and they need to get it from industrial sorts, you know, pr- mm. I, I suppose I could call it private, uh, private finance. Mm. Um, and we, uh, as more and more companies, of course, are, um, you know, jumping on the boat and hang on, you know, we, we don't want to be associated with you if you're doing X. Well, mm. we need to make sure that we, or should we say, we need to make efforts to ensure that we're not cutting off a source of funding by virtue of the fact that we are involved with, you know, a, let, let's say a controversial um, party. Mm. And I mean, we are currently talking about somebody controversial from an environmental perspective, but it need not always be from yeah. that perspective. It could be, you know, it could be, it could be for another reason, but certainly the environmental uh, and sustainability considerations are, are to the fore quite often. Mm, yeah. If you had a universal basic income, so you've got your basic needs met, how do you think that would change your work or your attitude to work? Would you still be doing what you're doing now? If you would still be doing that, uh, would you be doing it the same way? Um, yeah. How do you think it would change things for you? Well, it's difficult to know where to start with that. So I, I assume, let, let me just make sure that I'm along the right lines first. On this universal basic income, you're suggesting that every person, man, woman, child or other, is getting, you know, I don't know, £10,000 a year or something. Yeah, but that's a amount to live, yeah. Yeah, a, a number. I mean, my first reaction is, I don't know. It's a tough question. So I suppose uh, maybe I could try and address some of it, some of the issues that you would like me to talk about. I, I guess by starting with, you know, do I agree with it? And I don't know whether I agree with it or not. It's, it's another good question. Um, I think it probably would have, uh, it would influence my job in so far as it would change things somewhat. I mean, we, we currently live in a society where certainly the majority are encouraged to go out and, you know, do work, earn money thereby, better yourself, you know, make sure you've got the resources to support you and your family and all the rest of it. If on the other hand, that was just given to you on a plate, um, we probably tell something by my phrasing there. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, um, that I fully agree with everybody getting a number because I mean, presumably the system that, um, that that concerns would be everyone gets a number. And then if you want to do a job or something extra on top of that, you've got mm. the ability to, to earn more mm. you know, cash and resources or whatever it might be. Yeah. I don't know if I, my, the bit that I'm wrestling with a little is, um, uh, I quite like the, the incentivization that drawing a salary, uh, gives people, um, you know, if you're, if you're hell bent on um, becoming a you know, millionaire, well, you're, you're probably going to spend 18 hours a day, you know, um, trying to develop that idea, which will turn you into a, a seven figure wonder. Um, if, if everybody was getting a, a number and it was enough to survive on, I think probably you would find that, um, attitudes among society were such that, that there are perhaps less people who do want to go out there and, you know, fight the fight and sort of better themselves. Um, I think it, I think it would reduce the incentive to do that. And I'm not sure that's something that I uh, would necessarily applaud. Is that a bad thing though, in a situation where most work is kind of driven by creating carbon and the thing that we need to stop is carbon. I mean, don't you think there is a benefit to 
putting lots of people out of work because we have this kind of obsession with growth and and production. So I like to use the David Graeber thing of like, you know, you, you make a cup once, you wash it a hundred thousand times. Like, um, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't some people be doing less and, sh- you know, some people are kind of a bit unemployable. <laughs> you, you've given a different perspective on the question there, which I hadn't immediately considered. And I can, I can see some sense in saying that, but I think ultimately, or probably, I, I think probably I'm going to fall back to a position of saying it's all very well to say let's give everybody you know x amount of pounds that they can spend but where do where does it come from where does it go from what if (laughs) what if everybody said do you know what this year we're all happy to have you know my this notion ten thousand pounds and and we're all just going to stay at home Mm -hmm. i mean where does that money come from the following year because the you know the the I, i would argue that the economy is well done a lot less Perhaps it is, perhaps today it is fundable, but I think if, if many more, you know, if you saw a massive shift in the, the demographic of people who are actually doing a job for, for earnings, mm. uh, so, and by that, I mean, you know, to the extent that most people actually decide that, yeah, I could just sit at home and, you know, get my, get my standard sort of bread and milk each month and, and I won't actually do any work. I think that the system, well, is the system then sustainable? Uh, where do you find that cash from in year two? What about in year three when even more people are deciding? I mean, from a from an environmental perspective, yeah, I mean, it probably would help the planet if we all just sat down and did nothing for a, you know, a couple of months or something. Mm. Well, we, we did that um, it was, you know, a couple of years ago, didn't we? Um, mm. I mean, I remember, so I say that slightly in jest, but I, I certainly remember probably what was it after, maybe after two months of lockdown, wow, everything was so peaceful. And I, I genuinely think I could hear more birds and other wildlife. And you didn't have that constant stream of cars going past the end of the road. Or planes. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there was all sorts of things, which, uh, I, I don't know, the whole world seemed a lot, a bit more greener uh, at mm. that moment. And a bit less stressful, apart from not being less stressful, because obviously it was really stressful with the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's, 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 so I would say for me, that was less stressful, definitely. Mm. But uh, I'm not immune to the fact that, uh, you know, one must recognize that large numbers of people were having super stressful times because their job had gone. Um, and what were they going to do about it? You know, there, there wasn't anywhere to go out and get a job. Mm. Uh, everywhere was closed. So yeah. Oh, they were doing um, like twice as many hours for just the same amount or yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, it, it was, it, it certainly seemed a real breath of well, but you will have to excuse the pun, but a real breath of fresh air, um, <laughs> to not hear the, uh, the constant stream of traffic and to hear mm. the birds sing. Okay, so I'm going to do one more rephrase on this. Basically, it's a way of me asking, so I've said this a couple of times now, but it's a way of me asking the question, if, if, if money didn't matter, if it was a, no object, would you still do the job? Like, would you still turn up? Or would yeah. you do less hours? Or would you be like, oh, I'll do it occasionally, or I'll go into business for myself and I'll be an exclusive brand? Like, how, how do you think you would, how do you think it changed things for you if you didn't have to consider money? Yeah. Um, 
okay, it's a decent rephrase. Well, what would that change for me? Would I, would I just sit back and do no work at all? No, I don't think I would. I think that's, um, that's a really dangerous, uh, road mm. uh, for some people, but I would put myself in that category. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you said, look, I'll pay you and you can do nothing. Do you want to do nothing? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely have a serious think about saying, yeah, I'll do nothing. I think uh, most people would. Yeah. I don't think that's a, I, I realized for myself that, um, it's far better for me to occupy my mind and I, I guess, you know, my, my hands with something, mm. um, I don't want to, I, I think it can be quite a slippery slope. If somebody takes away that, yeah, you know, I, I think it refers a little back to the incentivization I was talking about previously. I'd want to keep myself occupied and busy. I might choose to do, you know, may, maybe I'll choose to award myself a three-day weekend or something. Mm -hmm. But I think a, a five-day weekend, a six-day weekend, a seven-day weekend, that's just not going to work for, for me personally. Mm -hmm. Some people perhaps, um, but for me, yeah, I think that's really dangerous. I, I think it, it's just such a slippery slope before you just put your feet up and you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just don't think I can do that. Mm. I, I, I don't think I would be comfortable with doing so little. Uh, and I suppose, oh, I mean, I, I could quite easily say, well, I'd be happy doing, you know, I don't know, four days work a week. And then on the other, you know, three days, maybe I have a, a day or two of rest a week and that, that final missing day. Yeah. Maybe I do try and, you know, develop some sort of side hustle that I can mm. uh, build into something that will reward me. Um, mm. I mean, it could just be a hobby, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, yes, even if I got paid for doing nothing, I do not think I would do nothing. You can change any three things at work. What would they be? <sighs> well, that, that is a good question. Um, so what would I change? I would, I would probably like to change within the institution, the dynamics that currently has some foothold. And this dynamic is one where decisions are made by committee and, and, and often many committees. Mm. I think that we could do with, so I say the institution I work for, but I, I do think this is a point of wider application. I think a lot of, uh, higher education institutions could do with this sort of change. Mm. I, I do the work I do is reasonably fast moving. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely standard for one of my colleagues or my superiors to say, I need this done by the end of tomorrow and mm. I'll do it. Mm. Um, unless that's unrealistic, but I think with other, other jobs around the institution, it's quite often that you might say, could you do X for me? And then you end up having to remind them in two weeks time because it hasn't been done. Mm. You ask them why not. They say, oh, well, I had to refer it upwards. And then that went upwards again, you know, so I, it's, it can be quite frustrating having a, a lack of decision. It's almost like suffering from collective indecision. Mm. You know, how do we answer a question? Well, I, I guess it's a Twitter poll across, you know, 10,000. Let's, let's ask the whole world what we should do. Luckily for me, that doesn't impact me so often. Uh, I think there are probably other colleagues of mine who do get caught in that, uh, in that trap more often, but for me, I'd like a little stronger direction and decision-making, uh, sometimes that's one and I'm out of ideas already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what else? I mean, I honestly think that there's, um, so much, so much, so many good things uh, that I could say about where I work. So I, I, this, 
I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll kick myself and, um, you know, for, for thinking that nothing should be changed. Um, but I, I, I mean, in terms of burning changes, I, I can't, um, I don't, I mean, you, the, I, don't have, I don't have a list of 10 people. Yeah. The 10. commute's gone, hasn't it? So you, you get well, yeah, to work home, you've got some peace yeah. and quiet. You can still go into the office. Yep. You're doing kind yep. of what you enjoy in the area that you're enjoying it. It's not actually, I, I do. I tell you one thing that I wouldn't mind seeing changed, and that is um, access to the various facilities which we have um, mm. on a on a either free or subsidised basis for. And I don't know whether this is just for the staff there or for everybody, mm. uh, even members of the public. Um, but I, I think about you know, I mean, most most places either have uh, a gym or have access to a gym and, you know, other various sort of physical, uh, recreational activities. Mm. Um, I think if they said, you know, if the institution said, well, actually you can go there for free, they would inevitably have to sort of, let's call it Russian access in some way. Um, but maybe it's as simple as, you know, I don't know, your, your surname begins with B and therefore you can go on the second day of each month or something, you know, maybe that would cause, I would say between, you know, between these hours. Mm. I mean, that's the sort of thing where, yeah, I think that could provide a, a tangible, it, it provides a tangible benefit, not only in the fact that you get access to the facilities for a reduced or, or no, uh, costs, mm. um, but that feeds into the sort of well-being of the staff, uh, and which I think is is really important. And I, I genuinely think my employer does look at the well-being of its staff as a a serious issue not to be overlooked. Mm. That's that is something they could do, which I think would help. Though mm. so those are things which I can genuinely stand behind and say, yeah, I guess I, I thought about those to a greater or lesser extent, and I do think that a change there would be welcomed. Mm. I'm going to throw it over to you now. So just if you've anything to say that we've not talked about, anything that you'd like to discuss, anything that you'd like to bring up or anything that you want to promote, or even if you, you know, like if you do any volunteer work, anything like that, that you want to kind of like flag up any social media, you want people to follow anything like that over to you. Perhaps one of the other things I could uh, start to address is, I mean, we've, we've talked quite um, long and large about, you know, working from home and not going into the office so much. Um, I think, uh, traveling for work purposes is something that, you know, I, I could definitely spend a moment talking about. And the reason for saying that is it has now become such an alien concept, um, not having done it to, you know, uh, as a minimum two and a half year, by this, I mean, traveling outside of where, you know, where my institution is based here in Leeds. Mm. So maybe I would, I don't know, travel to Birmingham for a, for a day's mm. meeting travel down to London or, or it could even be internationally. It, it now seems such an alien concept. I mean, I, I'm not sure what would I do that again? And then part of me starts thinking, well, you need to feed into this topic of debate. The fact that it seems that around the world, quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of folk have said, actually, why do we need to get this chap over from, from England? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, we're going to have to. Buy his plane ticket, which will cost a thousand euro, and put him up in a hotel, feed him. Mm. Uh, why don't we just open the computer like we normally do mm. and you know, participate in, in that way? Um, it certainly it certainly opens your eyes to the fact that uh, I mean, certainly winding the clock back many years when you know I'd quite often have to. Uh, for instance, get the train down to London and it'd be an all day meeting and you, mm -hmm. you know, you'd be getting on the seven o'clock train, you'd be coming home on the, you know, eight, eight PM train, it'd be a very long day, all the rest of it. 
Um, but of course you'll, you know, I mean, f- first things first, you take five hours worth of traveling off that day. Um, mm. if you were just doing things remotely, which then starts to make you think about the environmental lack of impact that uh, mm. using a computer to do, uh, to do your meetings in that way. You know, the, 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 the tangible benefit is that people don't need to use the ridiculously expensive train. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There, there, there is resources being spent by either my employer or the, you know, or the, the person that's inviting us down. It, it just sort of, it almost, um, uh, rams home the point that it, that we used to do things in, in some instances, you would say a really inefficient way. Mm-hmm. Inefficiency can be viewed from, you know, different perspectives, but in terms of use of resources, it, it seems like it was very inefficient. I mean, I'm certainly not all of the problems are solved now, mm. um, but I, I do think that, I do think that some of the problems are solved. So when I, when I travel into the office, which, um, we, I, I probably do once every couple of weeks or so, you know, I, I ride my bike every single time I go, even if it's raining. Um, because it's, it's actually really nice just to get out there. I mean, I'm, I'm a bike rider. You're not doing it every day, are you? So it's not like, oh God, again. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yes. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it can sometimes be, feel like a game of roulette cycling through, <laughs> ahead. um, you know, particularly during the rush hour times, but I mean, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd happily ride there in the rain for the sake of the fact that you're getting out and, um, you know, I, I guess you. It's um, there's there's a lot of good things about that. Uh, one of which is that you feel like you're participating in the agenda about you know we, when we talked about the environment and climate change and I mentioned sustainability, all of those sort of things. You know, those are big ticks in, in the box uh, by sort of doing that. And I think that uh, in previous times, although I used to ride my bike a bit into work. Yeah, it just wasn't the same as now. I mean, now I'd, if you said to me, can you drive to your office? I, I think I'd pretty much object on principle and say no, but yes. I'd happily get my bike to go there. Yes. You know, I, I don't miss the, uh, oh, actually there's, there's one other thing which that makes me think of. I was talking to a friend about this, um, probably, a, probably a year ago, I would say, and it's the use of face masks. So I was going to refer to the fact that I used to get on the bus each morning, the bus would be absolutely packed by the time we were three or four stops down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I'm sure you won't have missed the fact that um, literally thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of people just in Leeds get ill um, towards the end of September, start of October. Mm-hmm. And of course, generally speaking, we'll say, well, it's all the students have come back, you know, and there's sort of three, three massive universities in Leeds and there's hundreds of thousands of people descending upon the, upon the city. And quite often I found myself on the bus, you know, you can hear somebody with a hacking cough sat down mm. and you and you thought, you know what, I, I really just want to hold my mouth and nose here. Mm. Well, of course, with the advent of the pandemic and the widespread use of face masks, as I said to my, uh, my palace last year, it's legitimized the use of those. Mm. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, no great revelation that a lot of students from uh, places like China and Korea and that sort of thing attend universities in Leeds. And I, I don't know what it is, but those guys perfectly happy wearing face masks literally every year. SARS. No it was SARS. Yeah. Yeah. So, but now I feel like I can do that. And I mean, you're right. You might look at me funny the first time, but mm. the fact is probably half the people are going to be doing the same. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose that it was almost an inevitability that you would get, you'd get a nasty, you know, nasty cold, uh, mm. at certain times of the year. Whereas now 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, as we've said, I, I'm not traveling into the office that often, but I still see the days coming when I'm going to have to get on that bus and there's going to be people, you know, not very well on that bus. Packing well, us fluttering everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, uh, I was in London for a while and, and like you were always getting ill from, from the buses and stuff because it's just yeah. so many people. I love it when, you know, you get one of these buses in winter and you've got all your winter coats on. So, you know, you, you get in there and it's kind of freezing outside, but then everyone's hot because there's a temperature change of all these bodies in there. And then someone opens the window and then you've got cold blasting in your face. It's like, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> but then I'm a big advocate as well for like, you know, more mass transit and so on, because we need more public sort of transport. But then if we need to travel less. I was going to ask you about sort of localism, because it sounds a lot like, I mean, your you, your sort of work miles will have fallen off the cliff by yeah. the sounds of it. So, like you know, the amount of travel that you're doing compared to what you you were doing. I mean, if you went decade decade by decade, like two two years into the last decade, you probably have circled the earth a couple of times by now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, does that make you? Does has that kind of shrunk your world? outside of work as well like do you travel around less or do you sort of travel as much or more like do you think it's had any impact um yeah another good one i think i mean on balance i'm probably going to say that it it hasn't had a major effect in one direction or the other Mm. um so, you know, I, I think most people would say they're working week, they're based at home, you know, I've got, well, home stroke office attendance, but then, you know, you do something at the weekend and that doesn't necessarily involve drumming to the other end of the country every weekend, mm-hmm. but you, you definitely want, you know, some, some visits or, or that kind of thing to, uh, to, to places that you haven't been or haven't been to recently. And I'm still doing those, whether that's seeing friends or, you know, driving up into the Dales to go for a hike or a bike ride or something like that. Um, I mean, I'm still doing it, visiting my family, um, for me is a trip to the South coast. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm still doing that, uh, admittedly not every weekend. Um, but I, I would say that the regularity is pretty much the same as it used to be. I mean, yes, I suppose I could say that there was a time, uh, you know, in, in, in the pandemic proper. So turning mm. back a couple of years ago mm. where, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd be looking, I'd be looking with sad eyes out at my car thinking, well, Prodigy, I, I, I'm going to have to go and do some miles in it because otherwise the battery's going to go. Flat. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I mean, I, that, that has become, that has become less of a problem, uh, you know, certainly as I've as I've got used to the fact that I work at home, um, I suppose, yeah, I, I guess I would say that I've got some level of agreement with you when it comes to, you know, did it shrink your world? I mean, yeah, you know, I barely go into the office these days. Mm. Um, so seeing the four walls of my, well, it used to be a makeshift office. Now it actually feels like my office. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh. Uh, yes, that, that takes a bit of getting used to, but it, it actually, it almost makes you feel more incentivized to say, right, so weekend, I'm going to go to the seaside or mm. the Dales, or mm. I'm, I'm going to go into town to go to the cinema because, because it's something dis- you know, different from mm. modular telly. Mm. But then uh, that's probably still a reduction in miles, you know, cause you've already got rid of those Definitely. miles of travel. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it'll five, be five, yeah. five 
yeah, five, five days a week. I mean, you know, there are weeks where it differs, but the vast majority of my time, 80 or 90% of the time, I'm mm. not doing the, what is it, round trip of about 12 miles or something mm. to, to go to work. Mm. So yeah, well, the mileage in that respect is, is drastically reduced mm. and I'm, I'm not doing uh, more mileage at the weekends that is, you know, enough to sort of make up for the reduction, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, but I, 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 I don't mind that at all. I mean, it just, in my mind, it just means I have less impact, um, on, on the environment, which is, which is negative. Um, you know, I, I'm, I mean, even if, um, even if one advocates, uh, as you called it, mass public transport, you know, to save, save, stop having 50,000 cars driving into town instead, just put a thousand buses on or a thousand trains or a thousand trams. Tube. Let's see. Let it tube. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lot of transport. <laughs> or trams or a monorail or something, you know, but we should have like Leeds is big enough. We should have something. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Do, do you really think so? I mean, I was at university in Sheffield when they built, uh, the, the tram there. And, um, I think I probably used it maybe three times in four years or something. Well, I mean, that, that, that's perhaps a bit disingenuous because they hadn't actually completed it until I came back <laughs> last one year. But the fact remains in the remaining, you know, nine months I was there, I used it three times or something. Mm. I, I think the problem with the, the, the reason I'm not a massive proponent of having a tube, a tram, something like that, uh, in Leeds is because I'm acutely aware of the fact that, so the buses have, in my opinion, pretty decent coverage. Uh, to me personally, I only need to walk about a hundred yards to the bus stop. Mm. Um, some people are less fortunate. They might have to walk 300, 400 yards. Mm. You know, some, some people will inevitably have to walk half a mile, mm. but with a static fixed system, like a tube or a tra- I mean, you can't, you can't just. You can't just go, oh, I'll tell you what, this year we're going to have a, a train line that goes straight up Stossel Road. You know, you, that, that sort of thing takes 10 years to build. Oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. You can't chop the yeah, chain. Yeah. Whereas a bus route, you can say, actually, you know, can you start turning left at the top of the road, not straight on, because we need to go around the back of the houses and pick up some more people. Mm. And I think the, the size of the, I mean, I, I probably don't need to tell you how much a tram, tube, et cetera, those systems are outrageously expensive. I, I honestly struggle when, you know, when, when, uh, you see numbers quoted in the press about, oh, it's going to be a, you know, 400 billion pounds to, to build three miles of train track. I just think like, I couldn't do, I just couldn't, I can't see how they're going to spend that money without making the track out of money. Um, and, and then, you know, they're going to have to make the foundations out of gold as well. You know, I just don't see how it's so expensive. Uh, I mean, that well, isn't it? It's people in the way it's, it's, you know, yeah. contracts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're getting uh, paid and people like having to do bits of work and do bits of research and yes, I mean, it's, just done it. it's, it, it's in my, it's in my field of view because of course, it's public funding in the main that funds it. And the numbers they talk about uh, are just outrageous compared to, well, various other things. Um, you know, you'll probably be aware of that promise that was made in during Brexit times, which I probably don't need to repeat. Um, it, here's a hint. It has a connection with buses and, you know, that, that sort of number is, is 
absolutely um, small fry compared to some of the numbers that you might hear about things like HS2, for instance. Mm. You know, I, I don't know how much it is per mile, but it's a massive, it's probably a bigger number uh, than the number that I was uh, that, that I was thinking about per mile. Mm. Um, you know, so if you want to make 150 miles worth of track, I mean, it's just an outrageous amount of money. I'm sure it's greater than the, uh, the GDP of a lot of countries, no doubt. It, it just seems... It just seemed quite wasteful, or maybe wasteful isn't the right word. Maybe just expensive is the right word. Um, I mean, near to where I live, the, um, they've just opened the, let me get this right, I think it's the East Leeds Orbital Road. Um, so it's basically a nice new stretch of road. Uh, you know, in, in, in my mind, what have they done? They, they've built some extra roads, probably about, feels like they've, maybe done about five miles worth of roads. I'm fairly certain that the cost of it was uh, either a billion or, you know, it, it was must be many hundreds of millions of pounds. Mm. Well, and of course, you know, um, with, with the economic conditions being what they are at the moment, uh, maybe in a couple of months, we'll be looking back wondering, saying, did we need five miles of extra road, however smooth it might be, or would we have been better, say... I don't know, uh, giving people free heating or something for a month. Um, don't know the answer, but, you know, I, I just feel with a lot of the public projects, the numbers involved are outrageously large. Thank you again to Stephen for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And, uh, and of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. See, a nice short one with not too much editorialising in it. Did you like that? Was that better or worse? I don't know. But if you want to tell me either way, you can. Super easy like. You can follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. Use the hashtag Working Hours Pod Leads to stay up to date on when new episodes are being released, to DM me with your questions, or most importantly, to get in touch if you'd like to be my guest on this show. Please do chuck in anything you can to help the show grow. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month or you can make a one-off donation of whatever amount uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to support working hours again from as little as a pound a month why not be super awesome and join both do something new and something different remember to like share follow and subscribe to working hours that's me cheers ears take care out there and be kind to each other leads Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Please like Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore Leeds and on LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios leads are you considering taking the plunge into podcasts or audio content then think western studios for support advice and guidance on getting it made at western studios you work with a real life learner who is actually in leads not a piece of software not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses but me a person 
in physical place-based reality. If you want to work with me to make your podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, whether it's for your own cause, your publicity campaigns to promote your products, increase your sales, or just to create your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. Don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now, and then when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I will share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leads businesses, leads campaigns, leads brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? Contact Western Studios at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. £25 an hour after that for editing, recording, production. I can also arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time, that's what. Time is running out. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them loiners what wants it. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems and performances, whatever you got, baby, and make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. Is it unfinished? Good. I can help you with that too. I can work with you to find actors, musicians and voiceover artists and quickly realise your projects. I get practice making the shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcasts on your own by working with me instead.